invite our friends who are going to be heading over to the Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be heading that way now. Uh, Those of you who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all of his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the powerful truth of your word. Father, you promise that it is transformative. You you teach us, Father, that it's like a sharp two-edged sword. Divides deeply inside of us. Father, in other places, you teach us that your word... It's like a a fire, fire that you use to purify. Father, shape us and mold us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ through your word today. And we ask in his name. Amen. So as we begin Psalm 33, something that you'll want to make note of. This is the first time since Psalm 2 that there's not a superscript, one of those descriptors. Now, those of you who are really savvy, you're going to go back later and you're going to look through your text and you go, Philip got that wrong. It's Psalm 10 where there wasn't a superscript. And how did he miss that? Well, historically, most people associate Psalm 9 and 10 together. In fact, some older versions, when they started adding chapter numbers and whatnot, actually had different numbers of psalms than the 150 psalms that we have here. One of the reasons why is because Psalm 9 and 10 were actually considered 
one unified psalm. Like they, it was one very large psalm. And the reason for that is, is if you go back in your English Bible and you look at Psalm 9 that does have a superscript, it ends with the word Selah, which is a musical term that most people have come to recognize as a musical pause in a song. But it's really weird to end a song with a pause. It's kind of strange. If you read Psalm 10, they actually go together really well. And the point where it stops in Psalm 9 in our English versions and picks up in Psalm 10 in our English versions, it's a really good spot to pause. And so I actually agree that those probably are one large thing that should be done together. And so 10 would fall under the superscript of 9. And so the last place where we didn't have one of these descriptors, you know, a Psalm of David or a Psalm of such and such or played on this kind of instrument or whatever, was Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 didn't have one. All the other ones have had one until we get to this point. You say, Philip, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. I just want you to have the information. So, um, but what it actually does mean is that we don't have a good historical context for the psalm. That's really what that means. Those superscripts, which are the first verse in the Hebrew text, give us information about how we're supposed to understand the psalm. Uh, it was a Psalm of David written like for next week, just to kind of jump ahead as a preview, almost a in-service commercial, if you will. At the beginning of Psalm 34, a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. We have great historical context on how to understand this Psalm. You just go back and you find that story and you see what was going on in that story and you put this Psalm into that story. And that's what most of these have helped us To do along the way. And so when we have this one, this song of praise for the great victory and the kindness and the mercy of our creator God, we don't have a good historical context to put it in. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when they wrote it. We don't know what was going on when they wrote it. And so it has to stand alone. The beauty of a psalm like this one, however, is that we don't need a lot of historical context. The content of the psalm does stand alone. It's the sort of thing that any person in the scripture at any time in any context could have sung. Because it's a universal psalm. How does it start? It starts with a call to worship. God's people are to worship him. And there's three mandates given here. One, sing for joy. I'll be honest, there's times... In the context of corporate worship over the years where I have not sung for joy. I just haven't. Confession's good for the soul. There's been times where I've just kind of gone through the motion of singing, but my heart's not been in it. I've allowed my circumstances to outweigh the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the goodness and the truth. Of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. I've been distracted in my worship rather than attentive to the greatness of who Jesus is. And the reason why we have to have commands like these in the scripture is that the Lord knows that there are times and places in our lives where we are not attuned to his greatness and his goodness and his glory. And we are distracted by the frivolous things of this life. And by the way. As serious as your circumstance may be, it is frivolous compared to the glory of God in Christ. And there are times when we are distracted from the majesty of the greatness of God. And we don't sing for joy. We just kind of sing. And so the scripture 
is kind to us, to command us, to remind us, sing for joy. It's a reminder of our present condition before and in the Lord. Notice what he says. Sing for joy in the Lord, a place I should not be, but because of Christ I am. Oh, you righteous ones, a thing I should not be, but I am because of Christ's work for me. This is what should drive joy into my heart, is the constant reminder that I have a location I should not have, and I have a condition that I should not have. I am in the Lord, and I am a righteous one. By the way, anyone who knows me well, has known me long, or knew me before Christ, will declare to you, I am none of those things in myself. Yet I should have great joy that God has made me to be those things. Regardless of how trying my current circumstances may be. Praise is becoming to the upright. Of course it is. Why? Because I would not be upright if it were not for the work of the Lord. And what should my response be to him? Thank you, God, that you have made me this way. It follows then another command to give thanks to the Lord. Now, in this particular case, very specific musical instrument with the lyre. Another reiteration of singing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Those two actually are a unit that go together. Give thanks to the Lord. And do so with musical instrumentation. Listen, whether you like certain kind of musical instruments or not is completely inconsequential. I know that it feels like I'm pulling back like scabs and bandages off of deep wounds when I talk about worship stuff. Listen, I'm going to try to be as plain as I can today. God does not care about your musical preference. There, I said it. Hashtag, I said it. He does not care. He has created a preponderance of musical instruments in this world and He calls for us to use all of them to sing praise to Him for His glory. Now, you may not like some of them. Some of them may not be your personal preference. Awesome. God does not care about your personal preference. What God cares about is that we take all things that are in this world that can be redeemed for His glory and redeem them for His glory. Give thanks to God. And then all throughout the Psalms, hosts of different kinds of instruments. And then sometimes no instruments at all. The key isn't what you're doing it with. The key is, is why are you doing it? I'm doing it to give thanks to God. Are you doing it to show out, to demonstrate a talent, to demonstrate a skill? Are you doing it to try to draw some emotional response from the crowd? Are you doing... There's a whole host of reasons that are wrong reasons in a worship context to do it. Do this to give thanks to God. Friends, God cares about both the process and the end result. The means and the end. Cares about them both. And you could do the same thing 
in the same context and one be beautiful, glorious praise because the heart's right and the effort's right and the action's right and the motivation's right. And you could do the exact same thing the next week and it could be wretchedly sinful and you need to repent of it and the outward expression of it be no different. God cares about the heart. And when we come together to express worship, the motivation, at least one of the chief motivations, should be giving thanks to God. Thank you, God, that you have saved me from my sin. That's incredible. And then sing to him a new song. This puts the argument to rest, by the way. Well, why don't we sing the old songs? Well, we should sing the old songs. Scripture teaches us to do that. Why we always got to sing these new songs? Because the scripture says you're supposed to sing new songs. Old and new songs. There was a time when all the songs that we call old now that we like so much were new to somebody. If you only want to sing the old songs, that's called the Psalms. They're the oldest ones we've got. And there are people who do that. They say, just sing the Psalms. Like only the Psalms. Like there's no reason to sing anything else. So you get to that text in the New Testament that says, greet one another with Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you left two out of the three off the list. We are called upon to tap into the creativity that is in us as image bearers to find new and marvelous ways to declare the goodness and glory of God with our music and with our words. This is what we're called to do. But in the context of all of this, there is a call for us to worship God. Guys, this is universal. All those who are in Christ are called to worship God. Now... Why should we do that? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. Why should we worship the Lord? Here, the psalmist, whoever he is, gives to us several reasons from verses 4 through 9 as to why we should worship the Lord. First, we should worship God because God's word is upright. The word of the Lord is upright. It's true. It's faithful, it's reliable, it's trustworthy. All of the things that it properly speaks to, we can rest in when we properly interpret them as accurate depictions of who God is, what God has done, and who we are in Him, and what He expects from us. God's Word is upright. Friends, that's... A reason that he's worthy to be praised. We don't have to spend a lot of time doing a bunch of guesswork trying to figure out, well, what does God want? What doesn't he want? What's he like? What he's not like? I don't know. I'm not sure. His word is upright. He gives us a lot of insight into who he is and what he expects and why we are the way we are and what he has done to fix all of that. He's worthy of worship for this. Not only is he worthy of worship because his word is upright. Notice what the psalmist says next in verse four, continuing. And all of his work is done in 
faithfulness. God's work is faithful. In other words, God always follows through. He is a covenant making, covenant keeping God. He does not falter on his promises and he will do all things in his absolute power to accomplish his will. That's worthy of worship. That's worthy of worship. And when you compare that to us as humans, broken that we are, we can't even follow through taking out the trash. My wife's nodding. We can't follow through on the simplest of tasks. We are, by our very nature, promise breakers. That's what we are. And we don't mean to, and we have a lot of great self-justifying reasons as to why we are that way. But this is not how our God is. All of his work is done in faithfulness. Faithfulness to himself, to his glory, to his power, to his knowledge, to his wisdom, to his mercy, to his loving kindness. And he's worthy of worship for that. Third, in verse 5, God's worthy of worship because God loves righteousness And justice. God loves righteousness and justice. And we could say in a sense that we love righteousness and justice. But friend, hear me this morning. We don't love righteousness and justice the same way that God loves righteousness and justice. We'll even tweak the definitions of things. For things that may not be as righteous as we would like for them to be, to be more righteous. Or things that are much more righteous than we want them to be, to be a little less righteous. Or uh, our version of justice wasn't quite implemented the way that we thought it should have been. So we kind of tweak the way that people should understand how justice should or shouldn't work. You know, even in our society now, we have totally messed up the concept of justice by adding adjectives to it. No such thing as social justice. There's just justice. Maybe sometimes it expresses itself in society. Maybe sometimes it expresses itself in individuals' lives. Maybe it expresses itself. I get what people are saying. But you know what? At the end of it, justice is justice. And God loves righteousness and justice. He doesn't have to break those categories down. And strip them away and tweak them and alternate the understanding of them with unique language and philosophical jargon. God loves that which is right. God loves that which is just. And you know what? He does so absolutely with no flaw or fail because he's perfectly holy. That's worthy of worship. And as kind of a descriptor of this. Also worthy of worship, but kind of under the category of God loving righteousness and justice. The whole earth, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. God's merciful love abounds all over this broken world. So, Philip, what in the world does that have to do with righteousness and justice? Christ Jesus, the manifestation of God's merciful love, is both the just and the justifier, Paul says. 
He is the embodiment of God loving righteousness and justice. And the whole earth is full of the glory of the mercy of the Lord Jesus. It's magnificent. Fourth reason why we should worship the Lord. God created everything by the power of his word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And then there's a descriptor. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. Some versions, the way that they translate that is, is as in a water skin or a container. Which would parallel the next part of he lays up the deeps in storehouses. Frank, can you imagine? God gathers up all of the waters of the deep and puts them in his water cup. You try it. You ever been to the ocean? You ever been to the deep? Have you ever seen the footage of the people who send the probes down to the deepest parts of the ocean and send back video and footage of what that's like? The crazy creatures that are down there that live in the darkness and never come up to the light. The kind of plant life that's capable of living without any direct access to sunlight at all in the deepest parts of the ocean. Stuff that is still beyond the comprehension of human understanding. God gathers it all up and he puts it in his water container. The ocean. Friends, that's worthy of worship. I know this is a metaphor in the Psalms, but it's trying to relay the creative power of God. The God who speaks everything into existence and holds everything together by the power of his word, as is said in the New Testament. This God, to help you understand, to help all of our very, very small brains comprehend at least a little bit of the majesty and the magnificence of the power of God in creative work. He takes the oceans and he sticks them in his cup. That's the power of God. He's the one who's made all things. He's worthy of worship. And finally, very similar to the first one, because Hebrew poetry is intentionally parallel. Fifth, God's word stands firm. Say, you already said that. Well, you know what? The psalmist said it again, so we will too. Notice what it says in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Yeah. That sounds like a great idea. He just did this with the ocean. Yeah. I'm not afraid of a lot of things or a lot of people, but if I were out at the beach on a summer vacation like we like to go to to Florida and some dude walked out to the edge of the ocean and he held up a cup and he started sucking the ocean up into a cup, I'm going to be a little afraid. Like I'm going to be a little bothered. Like I'm going to I'm going to have issues. We're probably going to leave. So as quickly as we can. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Yeah. Why? For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The God's word stands firm. There's no negotiating with the most high God.
There's no stories like in Greek mythology of tricking your way into the positive elements of the afterlife because the God can have tricks played on him. No. His word stands firm. The way that he says things are is how they are, no matter how much we want them to be different from that. And he says there's one way to salvation. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true. Whether you like it or not, it's true. There's a lot of things in this world that are true that I don't like. My feelings emotionally about how things are in the world do not change the fact of the matter that certain things are just true. It's the way it is. And God's worthy of worship for this. And as such, we've been called to worship the God that looks like this, whose word is upright, whose work is faithful, who loves righteousness and justice, who's created everything by the power of his word, whose word stands firm and will not be shaken. And as such, victory, ultimate victory over injustice, over sin, over all the things in this world that are at least outwardly contrary to the revealed will of God, victory is the Lord's. Look at verse 10. The Lord nullifies and frustrates the plans of the city of man. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. This is very similar, by the way, the other reason why I pointed this out at the beginning of the sermon. Very similar to the last unsuperscribed psalm in Psalm 2. If you remember the words from it, what does he do? He laughs. At who? The nations. They rage against him. They rise up against him and he laughs at them and he puts them in their place. Same kind of thing happening here. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. He stands against the rebellion of the city of man. And then it says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. To show the contrast to that. The plan, listen, listen to this. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. We talk about our plans. Here's my plan. What's your five year plan? What's your 10 year plan? And life circumstances and situations and complications and unforeseen things often derail the five year plan, the 10 year plan, <laughs> the one day plan sometimes. The plans of God's heart stand firm from generation to generation. Nothing thwarts the plans of God. Nothing. No one. Nothing. At all. Ever. I don't know any other words to keep using to help get this clear. It cannot be done. And then he says this, whoever the psalmist is, says this remarkably strange thing that has been ridiculously abused on bumper stickers 
all throughout the world. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. This is such a weird verse, particularly in the Hebrew text. Because the word used here for nation is the exact same word that was just used in verse 10 that usually carries the notion of pagan nation. Same word. Exact same word. One singular, the other's plural. But it's the exact same word. So he's describing people who are blessed with a word usually reserved for pagan. I mean, if you wanted to get like real kind of snarky with it, blessed is the pagan whose God is the Lord. <laughs> like you all, you tech, in technical translation sense, you could say that. And you know what? I say amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because blessed is the pagan whose God is the Lord. Because guess what? You're not a pagan anymore. If God is your Lord. The people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Here, this is clearly applied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament for historical context. Think about the development of the nation of Israel. And it really frustrates people when I go this route, especially if you really have a strong, you know, um, I stand with Israel kind of pro-vibe thing, and that's fine, that's your deal, it's your political right to do so. But people really get frustrated with me when I remind them of just the biblical history of Israel. Israel was started when God called a pagan who didn't know him or worship him to himself and said, you're going to leave your people and I'm going to turn you into a brand new people who has never existed in the world and I'm going to turn you into a nation. His name was Abraham. And he was a moon-worshipping pagan god out of the Chaldees over in the Middle East someplace. Like, he, he did not know or care about Jehovah at all. He was a pagan. And God came to this pagan and said, Hey, pagan, I'm going to draw you to myself. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you something that you're not. And then from that, I'm going to launch an entire nation that has never existed so the world can see what happens when I take one person, bring them to myself, and bless their offspring. The world can then view what it looks like when God blesses a particular group of people. Because I've never done that before. That's the story of the nation of Israel. Which is what this verse right here just said. It's the reason why I think the psalmist uses the same word to describe what typically would be referred to as pagan nations. How blessed is the pagan whose God is the Lord. The people that I have chosen as my own inheritance. That's all the language of the Old Testament about Israel, by the way. Israel did not choose God. God chose Israel. That's what he did. And you know what? When the name Israel came into play later, there's two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was a scoundrel. Horrible person. 
And all throughout Jacob's life, he kept talking about the God of my father, the God of my father. The God. He never even owned the faith himself. God of my father, God of my father, God of my father. And it wasn't until after God turned him into Israel and he wrestled with God and he found himself being the source of what would be the deliverance of the famine from Egypt that he finally said, my God. This is the story that God has given about the nation of Israel. I'm going to take some pagans who don't care anything about me and I'm going to draw them to myself and I'm going to turn them into something that they are not. Friends, Israel is a type and shadow of the greater work of the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he does with all of us. He takes a pagan and makes him into something that he is not. It resonates in my ears what Peter wrote to the dispersed Jews. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. For once you were not a people city of man, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have received Mercy. Friends, this, this isn't about Christian nationalism. Hear me. Psalm 33 verse 12 is not about Christian nationalism. It's about the acknowledgement that God takes that which does not have life and light and fills it with life and light. It's about drawing out of darkness, pulling someone from the spiritual death that they reside in and resurrecting them in Christ Jesus. That's what this is about. And why is that beautiful? Because that's the gospel story of us all. It's the gospel story of us all. And it actually doesn't matter where you live. Whether it's here or Canada or Mexico or the Middle East or doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. God is calling a people to himself. And it's fantastic. It's beautiful. Worthy of worship. And God knows the hearts of men. Look what it says. I love this. I love this verse. Verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. Whole other sermon, whole other day. But whatever you think you're getting away with, you're not. Just throw that in there for where that's free. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And then hear this. Listen, listen, listen. Hear this. And then yields to the longings and the desires that they shape within their own hearts. No, I didn't say that. They don't come or close to saying that. That is not at all what God's word says. He, God, who fashions the hearts of them all, understands all their works. God does this. The beautiful thing about this psalm that's universal is the declaration of God's sovereignty in salvation. Because you know what he didn't do in the story with Abraham? That I really believe verse 
12 is a reference back to to push us forward. Do you know what he didn't do in the story of Abraham? Hey, Abraham, would you like to go to a new? No. That's not how that went. Hey, Abraham, would you give consideration after a couple of more verses of just as I am of taking your family and relocating to a place you don't know? That's not what he did. Abraham, you're going to go to a place you don't know, to a land you have not seen, and I will do this great thing through you. And Abraham said, this is what you told me to do. It wasn't an option. You're going to go do this because I've looked out and I've seen and I shape the heart. That's what God does. It's fantastic. And so then he begins talking about deliverance and salvation and victory. And he uses the metaphor of warfare. One of the reasons some people think this may still be a psalm of David is because of this warfare language. And the idea of the king waging war. Notice what he says. The king's salvation is not in might or strength. The king is not saved. By a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Now I have to be careful how I express what I'm about to express in East Texas. I am by no means, by any stretch of anybody's definition or imagination, what could be anywhere close to being called a pacifist. So when I say what I'm about to say, don't hear that. But I think one of the reasons why American Christianity has struggled and suffered the way that it has is because for so many years, these verses have appeared as untrue to us. Because we have been saved and delivered by great strength and great armies and great horses, instruments of war. We have been able to hide behind the shield of one of the greatest military powers that has ever existed on planet Earth. And we have been able to shout from behind that shield all manner of ridiculousness that doesn't really reflect Christianity at all. Because we have felt safe not in the power of God, but in the power of the numbers that we have protecting us on the wall, so to speak. And friends, the Christians in America, I believe, have gotten confused a little bit about where their source of deliverance and power and strength lies. It does not lie in human military might. My deliverance from my enemy has nothing to do with my capacity towards violence at all. My deliverance from my enemy is because God is greater than my enemy. This has nothing to do with politics or nation state stuff or any of the civic realities. And it has everything to do with the spiritual existence of God's people. And I think sometimes we conflate the two together inappropriately. And we feel like we have all this confidence and strength because we trust our weapons of war more than we trust our God who wages war for us. 
And friends, listen to me. I'm pro-Second Amendment as I come. But the guns you have stashed at your house are not going to overcome your sin. And they're not going to mend your broken relationships. They're not going to get the devil from hot pursuit off of you. They won't get him to stop roaring like a lion seeking whom he may devour. They will not cultivate in you a higher level of worship. And they will not give you any meaningful victory in the invisible powers and principalities and darkness that exists in this world. You cannot fight a spiritual enemy with physical weapons. They will not help you. And that's the point of what the psalmist is saying here. Don't trust the physical to wage war against the spiritual. My greater enemy is not the person that would try to seize power in this nation. My greater enemy is the one that lies within me. That would tell me that I don't necessarily need Christ as much as I think I do. Because notice what he says. When you get to verse 18. God's eye is on those who fear him. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope for his loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death. And to keep them alive in famine. God has attentive care to those who have trusted in his mercy. It's similar to the first time a parent lets their child wander off from the benches on the playground to sort of play by themselves. I'm just going to sit back here. I'm here. But I'm just going to sit. I'm going to watch. And I'm going to make sure that no harm comes to you from the outside. But I'm not going to necessarily be right on top of you. I'm going to give you room to move a little bit. Friends, that's the beautiful thing about those who've been saved, those who've been redeemed, those who've been delivered. One of the things that was lost to us in the fall was freedom. We are now slaves to our sin, slaves to our depravity, slaves to our brokenness, slaves to our dying, slaves to our death. And when God has redeemed us in Christ, one of the things that he gave us was freedom for freedom. Christ has set you free. You were made to run. You were made to reflect his image. You were made to be in loving relationship with him. You were not made to be slaves. The great creation narrative that we have in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 set itself at odds with all the other creation narratives of the Middle East because all of the other creation narratives of the Middle East, humans had been made to be slaves of the God and we were made to be images of our God. To be free. And to enjoy a communal relationship with our God. Not as a taskmaster, but as a loving father. 
And our sin drove us to a place where that was not so. And now God says of those who embrace his loving kindness, those who understand their victory is not in weapons of war. Those who as pagans have come to recognize that God has chosen them as their inheritance. Those who have understood their desire to sing praise to him comes from the redemption that he gives them. My eye is on you to deliver your soul from death. Mm. And what is the response to this? What is the response to this? Verses 20 and 21. It's a parallel. That's what Hebrew poetry does. It's parallel. Our soul waits for the Lord. For he is our help and our shield. Our heart rejoices. There we are again. What's the first verse? Sing for joy. Rejoice. Our heart rejoices in him because we trust faith in his holy name. And then there's a call, a call from God's people to God himself, a request of God's people to their Lord. God, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us. According as we have hoped, waited, trusted in you. Friends, this ends with the psalmist not presuming on the grace of God. God, all of these things that have happened have happened because of your great glory and your great grace. They are for our good. And as such, let your mercy abide on us. God, keep us in your loving kindness. Friend, is that the cry of your heart? As you sing for joy, as you give thanks to God, as you are moved to worship with various instruments and with your voices, and because of the goodness and the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty of God, as you begin to recognize the deliverance and the transformation that comes through the gracious work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is your heart's cry To not presume on that grace, but to continue to call out to God. Let your mercy stay on me. Friends, what a request. What a way to pray. What a way to sing to the Lord. God, let your mercy abide on us. Friend, don't you want that? Beyond wanting it, don't you need it? I need it. I need God's mercy to be made new every morning, every day, every moment, every second. Because if I want to have true victory in Jesus Christ. It can only happen in his mercy. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the splendid, majestic mercy of Jesus Christ. That is our Victory. Father, help us to acknowledge your greatness as is described here 
how your word is upright and your work is faithful and you love righteousness and justice. You have created everything by the power of your word. Father, your word stands firm and you give us deliverance and victory. You have an eye of grace on us and you have drawn us out of the destructive path of the city of man and you have placed us in your hand and in your care and you have given to us by image bearing the freedom that once was ours. Father, we call out to you. Thank you. We sing and shout for joy. And Father, the one thing that we ask as what the psalmist asked, may your mercy, may your loving kindness be on us, O Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.